Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you all for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner Ravinder is waiting there with bated breath. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, would you like to tell us about it, please? Yeah, I'm standing here with bated breath. (laughs) It's a great chat room, a great group of people. It's a great way to expand on the stuff that you learn from tuning into the show. I know for myself, I, you know, I don't necessarily always take in information audibly as well as I should. So I like to take notes and I chat in the chat room and that all kind of brings it all together. So I always learn a whole lot more. So do come join us and share that experience for yourself. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. In this week's spotlight, I wish to discuss the idea of evil. I have to admit that it both surprises and disturbs me to know that many supposedly enlightened teachers today insist evil is only an illusion. Indeed, one such prominent teacher informed me recently that so-called evildoers enter into agreements on the other side to play the role of the likes of Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Idi Amin, and so forth. Evil, according to the teachings of these folks, is not just a role someone takes on to educate us in some way. It is only a passive state of existence since we are all one and created perfectly from love. As such, love, the creator of all, could not create evil. This sort of argument continues by acknowledging that men can be confused, but since we are all exactly where we are supposed to be, then what we may see as evil is only a perception. Our perception is limited in the grand scheme of it all, for only the eternal is real. This life we live is but a schoolyard where we learn to become better human beings and thereby advance our spiritual growth. Those supporting this view insist that when we think of evil, we attract it. Some go so far as to say that if we think no evil, we will know no evil. That is, evil will simply not exist in our personal worlds. If evil does exist in your world, it is either due to karmic consequences you must have agreed to on the other side, and or it's the law of attraction at work. One would-be guru even stated that the folks who died in the Sedona Sweat Lodge incident attracted this into their lives. Now, I don't know about you, and perhaps it's just my background, but I am aware of crimes that are nothing short of evil and victims who truly cannot be considered anything but innocent. A young father, barely out of his teens, loses his temper with his crying nine-week-old son and slams the infant in the head. The baby dies. Are we to conclude that the baby attracted or chose this? How about all of those Jewish people who were slain by their captors only because they were Jewish? Did they agree or attract this? More recently, how about all of those gassed to death in Syria? Infants, small children, mothers, healthcare professionals, and so forth. Did they agree to or attract this? There are convenient answers, and often, in my opinion, spiritually minded folks opt for them. We all want our God to love unconditionally. We all want to believe that we are created perfectly as an act of love. We want this God to be not just all-loving, but all-good. An omnibenevolent God certainly would not create evil, so evil must not exist. This is a form of denial, pure and simple. We don't understand, so we invent a story, a myth, 
and then go about explaining the world we live in accordingly. And that's a sad commentary. The real problem is this. We all want answers, defined answers, definite answers. One of the answers we seek has to do with the meaning of life, and this invariably leads to matters of the hereafter. In our earnestness, we lose sight of the journey. In other words, we are so focused on discovering where we are going and why that we forget to fully participate in the journey itself and patiently await the time when we might grow in to the answers we seek. In my view, we should focus on our journey and not the destination. Life may be a schoolyard, but if it is, it does not exist to teach denial. If this is a time of lessons, what lessons are we learning right now today? That is the truly relevant question. If I see atrocious actions, am I not compelled morally to at least speak out against them? If I can stop an evil act, am I not obligated to do so? By what principle of morality do I hide my head and pretend or excuse evil behavior? My thoughts anyway. How about yours, Ravinder? You know, there's loads of food for thought in that. There's lots of different directions you can go in. Um, for example, you've got the discussion, does evil even exist? Um, according to the work of Zimbardo and his Lucifer effect, you know, we have the ability, all of us have within us the ability to be evil. Um, and I actually have a personal belief that good can wrap around upon itself in order to become evil. So you can see that best in the um, expression that goes, you know, the ends justify the means. Well, do they always do so? But, you know, that's that's one particular direction that you can go into. Um, but you've also brought up the whole subject of convenient answers, and that's something um, when you're trying to find the purpose in life, that is the biggest obstacle is not falling for the convenient answers because it feels good, because it's what you want it to be, because it gives you a simple explanation so you can continue with your life. You know, the key part of growing in life is to keep on and on questioning. Um, but then I come to the third part, you know. I mean, I definitely don't believe that... Um, everyone who is a victim of evil has brought it upon themselves. You know, yeah, you can put yourself in a situation where evil can occur, um, but there are lots of people who are totally innocent. But perhaps, too, we have to think that way because of the good of society itself. I mean, if we really believe that, well, you attract evil to yourself, well, that will just turn us all into really selfish human beings. Um, you wouldn't be caring about anyone else. So how does that aid society whatsoever? So, as I said, I just think there's lots and lots of food for thought in what you said. And I'll be thinking it through a whole lot more. It's well, definitely the, a value. The bottom line is, uh, if we're going to be rational human beings, and when you look out into the universe, and you look at what we think of as mankind, humankind today, forgive me, I have to remember my PS, <laughs> or my PC, PC, I should say, my PC speech, yeah. Uh, when we look out there and, and we compare the human condition to all of life, what sets us apart is our ability to reason. There's evidence that there are animals that you know, look into the future. So you see the squirrel, and whether it's instinct or thought, it stores away, preparing for the winter, you know. Um, the bear that hibernates. We can, we can look at animals, and we can see, we can find language among animals. But what we haven't found is this abstract ability to reason. So if, if indeed we are a gift... Uh, we are created by a creator, then it stands to reason that reason itself is a large part of that gift. And we're, we're, we're caught then with a conundrum suggested by Clifton Fadiman. Either reason is the gift, and it's where we should be placing our emphasis, or God plagued man with the ability to think. Make your choice. 
Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last live show featured Matthew Stein, and we discussed his books, When Disaster Strikes and When Technology Fails. Bob wrote, loved your show with Matt Stein. I bought both of his books right away. Talk about blow your mind. Everyone should read this material. CB commented, I remember listening to a survivalist-oriented show, and the guest was asked about keeping gardens and food stashes. He basically said he is keeping guns and will look for the food people and take their food. Being mobile and capable of extreme violence were his main survival techniques. Martin wrote, I think we all need to not only prepare for self-sustainment, but defense against the thugs who would loot and kill. There's always some element of society that goes wild in horrible times. Moving on, James wrote, I just love your shows. You and Ravinder are so honest and unpretentious. You're always bringing us cutting-edge information on a variety of things, all of them important to the way we live our lives. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jamie. You like that one, I suspect, Ravinder? I do, I do. We work hard to keep it real. Simone posted, I, Eldon, really enjoy your show. Find it via Lorna Byrne, then discovered Jillian Holloway. It's been great to hear your open and logical approach to all sides of thought and beliefs. You can tell the character and intelligence of a person by the willingness to listen and the courage to consider everyone. Well, I like that one. Thank you very much, Simone. David wrote, I read your book, Choices and Illusions, and was very impressed. I truly believe the Lord directed my path to this book and this new way of thinking about improving myself. Thank you, and God bless. Thank you, David, and I appreciate your feedback, and be blessed, sir. April wrote, The various Intertalk programs you offer have changed my life. I have been a customer since 1993, and I can't ever imagine giving up my collection. Thank you for all the help you have provided over the years. Well, and thank you, April. Ravinder, you got a thank you for April? Isn't that what we're all about? It is indeed. It's all part of the equation, so thank you. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by emailing me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. We sincerely appreciate your comments and feedback. Now to this week's show, Eternal Dharma with Vishnu Swami. So let me tell you a little about today's guest, Vishnu Swami also known as the Maverick Monk, relocated to study Veda at a monastery in the age, in India at the age of 11, and later became the youngest Swami to be honored with that position at the extraordinary age of 23. He has appeared on television and radio and in newspapers internationally and was featured in an award-winning spiritual documentary. He continues to empower and inspire thousands through his writings and speaking engagements. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Vishnu Swami. Hello. I'm excited for a good show. Well, good. Me too. Um, enjoyed your book. But let's begin this way. We like to know three things on this show, Vishnu. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? So let's begin by... How do you tell us a little bit about what motivated you to relocate at the age of 11 and why the nickname Maverick Monk? Well, the Maverick Monk is because I find a lot of people, when they come on the spiritual path, they say money is bad, the world is bad, everything material and physical is bad. Spiritual must be something the opposite of what the material, what the physical is. So they want to just disappear and go to some cave in the Himalayas and be separate from from the earth and just meditate. But I disagree with that approach. I say that spirituality is not about dropping off of the face of the earth, but it's about dropping back to earth. How do we integrate our practical life and our spiritual life together? Because they are one and the same. So we can be effective and powerful in what we're doing and at the same time progress to what I call passionate enlightenment. So I ruffle some feathers in the spiritual community that I grew up in. So they call me the Maverick Monk. And at the age of 11, I mean, what, are you just enlightened? Were you visited? Did your parents usher you there? Why at the age of 11? Not enlightened yet. Still working on that one. But um, my parents, they practiced spiritual spiritual life, and they were uh, spiritual practitioners. And we went to India on a pilgrimage, and we went to a lot of the holy places. It's a completely magical place. I don't know if you've been. Um, but 
then there was a monastery there, and it was beautiful. It was, it was amazing. You had mud huts and and there's like these crystals everywhere, and beautiful gardens and an elephant and everything. And so I stayed there for one night once, and then I stayed there for three nights, and then I stayed there for a week, and then for three months, and then I was like, I'm staying here. And then I stayed there for five years, then I traveled with my guru around the world. I just felt it like a natural calling. It just felt, it, it gave me a different perspective and alternative to life than just the normal life that I was living in England. Just, it just, and your parents so were good with just, I'm sorry, and your parents were good with just leaving you there. Well, it was a gradual process, and then I would go and visit them every once in a while, and every, yeah, during vacation times, and they would come and visit also. And they knew the people in the monastery, and there was the telephone. But no, my, yeah, uh, but it was, that was an issue, a bit of an issue. Okay. We're talking about your book, Eternal Dharma, and I probably should have mentioned that at the top. So let's kind of begin by defining Dharma. The Bhagavad Gita tells us the story of Krishna explaining to Arjuna the nature of duty. Arjuna is a warrior and deeply torn between his duty as a warrior and his duty to his family. He is under an obligation as a warrior to battle with family over the rule of a kingdom. Most of our existential choices are just like this in that they represent genuine conflicts between important values. So tell us about duty, the dharma of our lives, or how you particularly define dharma. Dharma is the sum and total. It's the essential conversation of the 5,000-year-old wisdom of India, the wisdom of Vedas, which you refer to, the Bhagavad Gita, which you know is one of the most important, how do you say, books or teachings yes. of, that, of that wisdom. And so really all of the Vedas, which is a huge body of knowledge, is just trying to understand Dharma and help people live Dharma. So the subject is has a lot of depth and dimension. On one level, a surface level, people understand it to mean duty or to mean what you're supposed to do, what's your function in the world. Some people translate it as religion because they believe that it's everybody's duty to be religious. I don't like that definition so much as religion or as duty because the concept has a lot more depth to it. Dharma, really what it means, it means inherent constitutional nature. It means it's the fundamental constitutional inbuilt function. It's basically the natural expression of what something is um, based on its, its very existence or based on its very composition. For example, uh, a pen, its dharma is to be written with, and that's just what it is. It has a duty, it has a purpose, it has a natural inclination. It, it's a writing instrument, and that's what it, that's its purpose. That's what it is. It's its duty. It's its dharma to be written with. So in the concept of dharma, all things have a dharma. We have a dharma. All physical things have a dharma. And really, when things are used the way that they're meant to be used, when they, they execute their duty, which is defined by their existence, or they, um, they, they live as a natural expression of who they are, then things are naturally in alignment with the rest of nature, because Dharma also likes to translate it as nature. And, um, and the results are better, there's less trouble, there's less pain in trying to live and execute, and it can actually help bring deeper inner satisfaction. Okay, so I, I just want to kind of get this right, because as you indicate, there are many different interpretations of what Dharma actually is. But yeah. if, if Dharma is, for all intent and purposes, uh, the essential essence, uh, and, and we go to the Gita and, and we look at Arjuna, his essence uh, in that particular life form uh, was that of a warrior. So how do each of us know what our essence is in this day and age? Yeah, it's, it's a, a good point. And what there is is actually there's two types of dharma. There's two expressions of dharma. There's one dharma, which I explain in my book, it's the eternal dharma, and that's the dharma of the soul. That's the dharma which exists beyond the body, beyond this birth, beyond our material designation, and that's the spiritual dharma, which maybe we can discuss later. It's about connecting to the divine in love and relationship. And in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna also 
um, discusses this with Arjuna in that discussion because the whole the whole Gita is a discussion about okay, why should he fight and some of the reasons are because of his temporary dharma which I'll explain in a second and then some of the reasons are it's because it's his eternal dharma there's a lot of depth to that now what a temporary dharma is is a dharma that doesn't exist it's all the time it's there for a specific period of time and it didn't exist before and in the future it may not exist so Arjuna's dharma or his purpose who he was as a warrior that existed in that birth. He was born in, in a warrior family, and according to his body and his temperament and his nature and, and, and the body and mind and social condition that he was in, then he was a warrior. But his soul, so to say, his spiritual essence wasn't a warrior. That's something else which exists beyond the body or beyond the mind, which is something else. Um, an example that I like to give for understanding temporary dharma is that of being a mother or a parent is that before the child is born, you have no specific duties, you have no specific natural inclinations, no specific, how do you say, function or dharma to do the duties of a parent, to nourish and take care and provide and protect for a child. But as soon as that child is born, then a new dharma comes with that, a new role, a new function comes with that uh, when the child is born. So that's a temporary dharma. And so inherent in the idea is that our our bodies are temporary. Every seven years, every cell of the body changes. We're going to die one day, but no one wants to die because that's a little bit of a glimmer of our eternal dharma, which is eternal by nature, the soul being eternal. And um, so, yeah, so that's the, yeah, so temporary dharma and eternal dharma. There's a clear differentiation between those. So, so then, I'm sorry, yeah. go ahead. Well, no, I didn't mean to interrupt a, you. Go ahead. It was a background to your question. So then your question is, okay, so how do we know what our dharma is? How do I know? Arjuna knew that he was a, he was what they say in Sanskrit, a kshatriya, or he was a warrior, warrior, and it was his, his duty to fight. But how do we know what, what our dharma is? How do I know what I'm supposed to do? And so the first part of that quest of knowing our life's true purpose is what's described in the subtitle of my book, Eternal Dharma is that uh, is to know the differentiation between our eternal dharma of the soul, which always existed, always will exist, and exists now, and a temporary dharma. And then is to understand that both of those dharmas are essential in our spiritual evolution, in our growth. It's through executing our temporary dharma that we have a strong foundation to express our eternal dharma. It's, it's very favorable, very supportive. They work, uh, how do you say, synergistically to be able to, to work together. And then to understand our temporary dharma, when we know that dharma is a natural expression of, of what something is, then we can do some introspection, and I do give exercises in the book. The book I explained is not just about some theoretical ideas, but it's about realized practical knowledge, about really transforming our lives and entering into a new way of being, and I give exercises and practices. But basically, it's through introspection and understanding what is the makeup of our body? What is the makeup of our mind? What is our natural tendencies? And what are our duties by our birth and our societal context? Then we can get a clearer understanding of our temporary dharma. In a sense, and, and I just want to distill this in the last couple of minutes before the break here then. In a sense, you're saying a temporary dharma could be a vocational dharma. So you yeah. become a police officer, and now you have a different duty than your brother who became a physician. But exactly. you change your career at some point and become, um, I don't know, a plumber. And your duty would be different again then. So in, in our modern world, where people change jobs all the time, they could have several temporary dharmas. Have I got that right? That is correct but there's also more depth to it. There's also that the idea that certain people, according to your karma, according to your actions, your previous actions of previous birth and the actions in this life, you will have natural tendencies and natural makeup in your being. So it's not that anyone can become a rocket scientist and a plumber. The Being a rocket scientist and a plumber take a different type of temperament, a different type of previous karma, previous preparation in previous lives or in this lifetime. And so one person, their, their temporary dharma will be natural for them to be a plumber, while someone else's temporary dharma will be natural for them to be a warrior or a 
or a rocket scientist. And, and um, so really about finding our temporary dharma is not just, okay, this happens to be the vocation I chose, but it's also about choosing the right vocation. Gotcha. All right, well, we've got a hard break coming up. So when we come back, we'll pick this up. I, I, I want to know, in your mind, is dharma an ethical teaching, a religious teaching, a spiritual teaching, all of the above, or what? I'll have you flesh that out. We're speaking with Vishnu Swami about his book, Eternal Dharma. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at maverickmonk.com. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room featuring our guest discussing the notion of dropping back to Earth. So if you're not in the chat room already, now's the time to get on over there, and you can do that by simply going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Vishnu Swami about his book, Eternal Dharma. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at maverickmonk.com. One word, maverickmonk.com. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. As you know well by now, music psychology is not just a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, but a new avocational interest of mine. 
So we just played some of My God Family and Good Friends. Tell us, Vishnu, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us about who you are? This, there's so much to that. We could have like several radio shows. In the ancient wisdom of India, there's one aphorism that says that it is through sound vibration that we attain enlightenment that will be delivered. Sound vibration has an extreme ability to be able to transfer emotion, to be able to affect physical reality, and in many, many traditions around the world, to be able to connect with the divine in love. So that music specifically was known as kirtan, which is a spiritual music where it's a type of communal musical meditation. And uh, there's just so much sweetness in it, if you understand the meaning and as you practice a very, very, very powerful spiritual practice and um, meditation. You know, meditation, oftentimes we think of it as solo, by yourself, something you do in a cave, alone in the Himalayas. But really, when we realize that when we chant the ancient wisdom, the ancient mantras in community, together with music, it has a magnified effect. So, you know, I can't resist, since you're on that, you have a meditation that you basically, it's a mantra, you basically yeah. say that, you know, you can use this one mantra, uh, regardless of what you're doing, you're running, uh, you, you know, you're, you're watching television, you know, you can use this mantra at any time, and it is, and, and I, I hate this word, but I'll let you fill it in, it's the magic one. Tell us about that mantra and why it's so powerful. Different, if you look into different spiritual traditions, you see everything is made from sound. In the Bible, it said, God said, let there be light, and then there was light. It was through sound vibration. Through the ancient Vedic wisdom, which I teach, it also says everything was created by mantra. So sound exists inside of everything. So mantras, in and of themselves, have specific power, sound vibrations and the, the intentions behind them, but also just the sound vibrations in themselves have specific power. Um, but if, if you're familiar with the, the 5,000-year-old wisdom of India, the Vedas that I, that I speak from, that I refer to, different mantras have different uses, different right. practices. Um, some mantras are used for healing. Some mantras, I I've actually have experience of this. I grew up in West Bengal, the most likely place in the world be eaten by a tiger in India. And I remember in the monastery, we had all the students there, and they said, we're going to have a first aid class. What happens if someone gets bitten by a cobra or a python? And what do we do? What's our first aid class? So what they told us was, don't tell anyone, and we're going to take this person to a tantric, to a, a, a village person who's going to chant some mantras and pull poison out of them with mantra. And that was our first aid class for snake bites, and then for broken arms, as well, we'll take him to the hospital, and we'll do this. And I was like, is this, is this serious? But I actually had a friend who was bitten by a poisonous snake, and he went to the, the tantras, and the, the tantrics, and through mantra, they were able to extract the poison. Now, I know for us in the Western world, that sounds like mythical, it sounds like, yeah, right, what's crazy, or, or, or maybe not, not so grounded in practical reality, but when you become attuned and familiar with the use of mantras, the idea that sound vibration, that mantra in and of itself, when chanted properly and done properly, can remove snake poison, is not such an abstract idea when you know people who've done it, when you've seen it, right? When you've when, when you've grown up with it. So right, it, and it's not that foreign. We, you know, we've actually entertained guests on our show where we talked about the power of sound and its vibration and. And, uh, you know, psionics is one of my areas that I've spent uh, many years working in. There are people like Ben Denisti who've laid down patents that are all based on frequency. And, for example, he, using the frequency, will imitate uh, the frequency of penicillin. So you don't actually have to have the drug to have the effect. It can be delivered with a penicillin. And as you know, medicine today is beginning to use sound to uh, eradicate uh, uh, growths in the body. And uh, so, no, I, I don't think that sounds so far out. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I do want our audience to know that, no, that's not so 
out of the realm of possibility based on, you know, some of the new science here in the Western world. So go on, please. Exactly. Exactly. So for thousands of years, different mantras have been used for different things, and have also been used in the spiritual practice for enlightenment, for growing. And when you go deeper into, I mean, mantra is very much the concept. is so deep in the Vedic, the, the, you know, the yoga, the wisdom of yoga. And so if you go there, a lot of people just say, okay, you can do this mantra, you can do that mantra, and they're kind of all the same. But when you understand more about them, they're not all the same. Different mantras have specific purposes, and different mantras have different power. So the mantras that I recommend in my book, Eternal Dharma, the ones that I teach, are not for just merely removing snake poison or helping with their health or helping with their body. That can happen. You can. It does help with your health and your focus and being able to you know, center yourself and then be effective. And it, 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 that, but that's the side effect. That's not their true purpose. That's not, the, that's not the best part. That's what I call banana skin instead of actual banana. You know, it's, it's not the main part. It's useful, but it's good. The real power of those mantras is that they're very much infused with love and relationship. The first mantra that I, that I teach in the book is Gopal, just the one where just Gopal, Gopal. And we have the whole meditation in the book for people who are interested. But, um, and the, the meaning of Gopal is actually a connection with the divine. Go means our body, our mind, our senses, all of reality, all of the physical things. Pal means the nourisher, the protector, the, the, the caregiver, the one who actually gives, infuses life, infuses the one who takes care and nourishes everything. So in the book, we speak a lot about spiritual surrender. We speak a lot that there actually is a greater power that exists beyond us, because we don't even know how many hairs we have on our head. We can't even can control our nail growth. Our power is extremely limited, but if we can connect to a higher power and create a loving relationship with that, then that opens a whole new other dimension of reality and power that helps us in our practical life to make more money, to have better relationships, and also to have a greater How about intoning that mantra for our audience? In 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 tuning, what was that? say it. <laughs> say yeah. It. Okay. Yeah. The, the the first one I teach is Gopal, right? And what I say is for the meditation, you breathe in, then you breathe out, and when you exhale, you go Gopal, 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 and Gopal, 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 and just repeat that mantra to yourself over and over again. If you do that before you start teaching, it's funny, I just did it now. You generally do it a little longer, but I just did it that tw- two times now. I automatically feel more calm, more relaxed, more present. And that was just by saying it a couple times on air. So if you practice doing that for five minutes, practice doing that for ten minutes. Or if you, if, if you come on teaching a meditation course, also I'll be releasing soon and we go into much depth how to really harness the power of it. You, you can feel, you know, because a spiritual wisdom, a lot of times it's just trapped in the realm of rule. People have this theoretical idea. It seems something etheric. And the whole thing that I try to bring, that I try to teach, is the practical, tangible reality of these things. For example, yoga. Yoga, people know it works. It's, it's interesting for me to come to the West and see how big and broad yoga is, how, how interested people are in, in, into yoga. And... Um, Coming from India, it's like, wow, that's like 5% of the Vedic wisdom. The, the wisdom of Vedic is so much more. Yoga is just one small part. But people can see that, oh, it helps with their back, it helps with their health, it helps with their abs, it helps with their physical reality. So people are able to, people practice it. But all of Vedic wisdom, all especially the spiritual side, is also very practical, very real, very experiential, if, if you Okay, I, I, I'm going to take you back to what I promised I was going to ask you. In your view, is uh, is Dharma an ethical system, a spiritual system, a religious system? None of the above, all of the above. How do you see Dharma? I see it as just a fact of reality. It's just a, a concomitant fact of life. Everything has a purpose. Everything has a, a, a reason to exist. Everything has a nature. An example of Dharma often given is water. What is the Dharma of water? Water by nature is wet. That's just what it is. You can say that that's religious. You can say that that's ethical. You can say that 
or whatever label you want. But the fact is, is water is wet, and that's just dharma. That's just nature. It is what it is. And it it might not always be wet. It might be in a freezer and become hard like ice, or might evaporate like steam. But it's dharma. It's nature. It's inseparable from the very existence of water. So I say, yeah, I would call it just the fact of reality, dharma. But the concept of dharma is being explored in depth and does provide us a very powerful ethical system. And also, some people translate dharma as religion. So for some people, it's religious. For some people, it's about spirituality. And um, because it's such a broad concept, it affects people in different ways. I mean, different people approach it in different styles from a different mindset. So using your analogy, water would have a duty. And its duty might be what? To... um Irrigate the soil and grow a plant uh, to evaporate and provide rain, but but its duty is form and function are the same. And it, that's what you're basically saying. Have I got that right? Yes, that its duty is to be wet. That's just what it is, and being that is enough. A fish's duty is to be in water. If they're in water, they're doing their duty. It's part of that, you know. And conscious beings like us have, I mean, a little bit more. Um, more action-orientated dharma, because we are, how do you say, living energy. So it's a little bit different. But physical things, it's duty is to be what it is. Now, to those who, you know, have difficulty with the concepts of dharma and karma and, you know, um, moksha and so forth, Eastern thoughts, uh, what would you say if somebody said, okay, we have a psychopathic sociopath here. Um, is that his dharma? That's what I talk about as harmful temporary dharma. It is nature to be psychopathic and sociopathic, but it's not healthy, not good dharma, it's bad dharma. And that exists very much. So an ex- the example of water, again, is that we would say it's true dharma is to be wet. But if it's put in a freezer, if it's in an unnatural condition for an extended period of time, then it seems like it's dharma is to be hard. It seems like it's dharma is to be cold. It seems like it's, 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 it's dharma of being wet and being fluid and adaptable is lost because of the unnatural situation. So we come here in this world, and due to our association, due to the situation that we have here, our true eternal dharma is often not expressed, most of the time not expressed, hidden. We have some temporary dharma, which, which if we practice properly will help us grow and ignite our eternal dharma. And we have a lot of bad habits. We also have a lot of what I call harmful temporary dharma, which can be psychopathic, sociopathic. And basically it all boils. And when we express those dharmas or when we go against our true dharma, our eternal dharma and our temporary dharmas, then the natural side effect is destruction, is pain, is suffering, is anger, is lust, is greed, is disappointment, is uh, incontentment. And so uh, hopefully that brings more clarity to your to what you've got. So we have a psychopathic serial killer. Mm. Yeah. There are, you know, uh, a number of uh, experts in the field of genetics and biology today that are, for all intent and purposes, telling us that... Um, there's a huge genetic uh, component here that we may even be able to determine whether or not you tend toward criminality based on certain genes. Uh, are you saying, or, or, or maybe I should change that and, and make it a question, um, is it possible that these individuals in their current form uh, genetically wired to be this serial killer uh, that that is indeed their duty? Am I understanding that correct? It it means they've been in the freezer for a while. Their true dharma has been lost and it's been covered over. Now, inherent in the, in the system is understanding that we don't just live one life. One life is so short, it's kind of hard to understand what happens to you in this one short life, that their idea of karma is that through many lifetimes. So, yes, they have a dharma in the sense that they have a tendency and an inclination to be psychopathic, to be a, a serial killer. And, and that tendency is there, but that doesn't mean they should execute that tendency. 
say that that an acquired temporary dharma that is harmful that won't help them grow in their spiritual path to enlightenment. And I think the real issue is that we all are that psychopathic serial killer, maybe just in different expressions and to a lighter degree. So if we ever feel pain, if we ever feel suffering, if we ever do something, I would say that's a natural expression of what I call God syndrome, which is the core problem that we're dealing with in life, is where we want to be the, the owner, the controller, we want to dominate everything, we want everything to happen according to our will, we want everything to be for us, what basically I would boil it down to is selfishness. So when we go towards selfishness, then we're going towards that psychopathic nature, we're going towards that that um, harmful temporary dharma, we're going towards that the very thing that conditions us and keeps us away from being our true self, or being, from expressing our, our highest dharma, then the more we go towards selflessness, the more we go towards love, the more we go towards service, then that's bringing us closer to our eternal dharma, bringing us closer to our relationship with the divine, which is the highest expression. So it's not just the psychopath we need to worry about, really about us. How do we live our highest dharma? Okay, would you say then that the predisposition toward, um, since we chose psychopathic, or I did, psychopathic behavior, is a karmic consequence from a prior life? Yeah. Yeah. Flush that out a little bit for us. Yeah. Karma, people understand karma to mean reaction. You punch someone in the face, then you get punched in the face. You know, you steal from someone, someone steals from you. And that's true but it's a little bit simplistic. The idea of karma, the little translation of karma, means action. And implicit to the idea of any action is there's a natural reaction for any action that you do. Anything that's said in the universe, any action that's set in motion will cause a reaction. That's, that's the law of karma that people are familiar with. So there's different aspects to that. So one of the aspects is you do good, good comes to you, you do bad, bad comes to you, and it's kind of straightforward like that. But another part of karma is to think think of it kind of like momentum. If you've got some if you've got a, a car moving down a highway, it's got a certain momentum and that's got its tendency. So even if you stop putting the gas, it's still moving down the highway. You have a fan spinning. Even if you turn the electricity off, then it still spins a little bit. So when we have our tendency, some people have a tendency to be angry or to be happy or to be to express different emotions or to do different things. We have a natural, we have these tendencies inside us. It's because we've been giving the gas for several lifetimes or we've been, uh, you know, putting the electricity on the fan. We've been uh, feeding a certain action and that action has now become habitual. It's become natural, uh, in a sense, natural. It appears to be part of our nature. So if, if you came in and saw a fan as it was spinning, even after the electricity is off, oh, the fan, the fan, it just spins. So the, the real question is, okay, is what causes our nature? What causes our tendency? What causes our temporary dharma? And that's really what causes, how do you say, it's, it's what is the power behind the reaction or what is the power behind our actions that cause a reaction? And those reactions sometimes pull us into doing certain actions. I don't know if that was clear, but it's actually a very profound concept. No, no, that's fine. That's really good. Bottom line, I guess, let me ask you this because we're running short on time, and I've got, we haven't even touched the tip of the icebergs. I have questions for you today. May have to bring you back. But um, you heard the setup piece, the spotlight at the top. Is there evil in the world? Evil? Evil? When you were speaking about that, I was like rubbing my hands. Yeah, I want to talk about this, right? The, the question, okay, is, well, what is evil? First, I'd like to have a, a better definition. But what I'm assuming you're talking about is pain, suffering, distress, murder, death, disease. Yes. Yes, and of course there is. Just open your eyes and look around. There's, there's places, the world is full of so much suffering. I just hit my nose on a piece of coral and I got stitches on my face. <laughs> uh, it is. You know, everyone who's being alive feels pain and suffering, and that, yes, there is. And everyone is someone cheat them, someone lie to them, someone uh, uh, do these things. 
So another question, I, 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 you were speaking about it before. It's like, okay, can God, if God's all powerful, it's like the problem of evil, right? If God all powerful, if He's all good, then how can these bad things exist? Yeah, and, right. And 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 that's the discussion. So there's a few different angles to it. I want to because I can tell you're very intelligent, and the nature of this show is is very intellectual, intelligent. A lot of times on the radio shows, I don't get this philosophical. It's much more just like practical. This is how you be. Happy. This is how you do this. But um, is uh, if we were to simply say, why does suffering exist? Why is there distraint? Why is there these things that seem to be negative? And if you were God creating reality, you would have to create those negative. You would have to create the suffering side of things in order for there to be the positive. And Vishnu, for... I, I don't want to cut you off. I could talk to you for hours here, but we're we're out of time. Um, oh, okay. I want everybody to know what's the best way to reach you and learn more about you, sir. The best way is you go to maverickmonks.com. You can get links there to Eternal Dharma. You really need to get this book because we haven't even, we've only talked about what's in the first like three chapters of the book. And there's so yeah. much more, you know. Um, so go to maverickmonks.com, get my book, Eternal Dharma. You can also get it at Barnes and Nobles across the country, Amazon. Uh, books a million anywhere but uh maverickmonk.com that's the best way it is a great book eternal dharma how to find spiritual evolution through surrender and embrace your life's true purpose great book go get it i want to thank you for your work vishnu for your willingness to share with us and to be so candid well we've come to the end of another episode of provocative enlightenment and i want to thank all of you out there for joining us today i hope you enjoyed our show and until next time wherever you are in the world remember believing in yourself always matters provocative enlightenment has been brought to you by progressive awareness research and other sponsors provocative enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks for a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. <laughs>